Everything is bigger in Texas, including climate change. But luckily, Houston is leading the energy transition. Here in H-Town, the fourth largest city in the United States, entrepreneurs from across Texas and around the world gather to work with titans of industry to build a technology that will reduce emissions and power a low-carbon future. We sit down with those changemakers and wildcatters who are solving the toughest energy challenges. With trillions of dollars on the line, we dig into how Houston will bring technology to market on a massive scale. Join us as we talk with leaders from the energy capital of the world as they show us how the energy transition gets done. I am Nada Ahmed. And this is the Energy Technology Podcast. And I'm Jason Etier. Let's jump in. Welcome back to the show. Today, we have with us the CEO of Emission Critical Technologies, Sham Setharam. Emissions Critical is a SaaS platform that traces product lifecycle carbon intensity and automates transaction level reporting. Sham tells us that this is kind of like a carbon nutrition label on a product. Um, tell us more about how is that different from a lot of other solutions out there that are trying to do the same thing in terms of life cycle product um, assessment? Yeah, sure. So first of all, thanks uh, very much for having me. I'm really excited to be here with you. Um, yeah, absolutely. Thanks for that introduction, Nada. So um, yeah, we are developing a SaaS platform that simplifies and automates carbon life cycle analysis. And as you as you kind of pointed out, it's sort of similar to a nutrition label. And so on that nutrition label, you might have like, for instance, something analogous to your calories, right? Which would be your gross carbon footprint. Then you'll have all the ingredients below that, right? And, you know, as far as the carbon context is concerned, it might be your scope one, two, three emissions. What's the breakdown of that? And then you might have a separate section on that statement that basically talks about uh, you know, what kind of mitigation measures are you putting in, you know, in terms of CCS or CCUS, any credits that can be basically earned and then applied for that specific product. So what really differentiates us is that, you know, first of all, most of the um, emissions reporting solutions out there, and I'm talking specifically about software, uh, is they they look at just the scope one, two, three emission inventories. This is the stuff that goes on those sort of glossy sustainability reports, right? What we do, however, is we take that emission in inventory, that's an input into our system, and then we add on details about the production process, and we add on details about the production routes as well. So how are the raw materials actually moving through the value chain? And then once you finally uh, finished your product, how are you actually transporting it to the end customer? And those routes can be different. And so what we do is we take that energy consumption purchasing data that's basically fluctuating on a month-to-month -month basis and then create an emission profile for every single product. Mm -hmm. And as, as we've spoken about, you can think of that as like the carbon nutrition label mm -hmm. for every product. Now, when I speak about product, I'm speaking product in a general sense. So a product can be, you know, like a barrel of oil that you sell to your customer. It could be a project, like a transaction, or it could even be a service. And so what we are doing is we're doing the life cycle analysis of those, those specific things. Hmm. Yeah, so uh, I'm, I'm curious what led you to starting this company. You said you've been, um, you, you were founded about a year ago. And what was that moment where you decided that there's a need for this in the market? Yeah, absolutely. So I've actually been in the field of sort of GHG systems tracking for, you know, uh, more than 10 years. I, I've worked, um, you know, with some of the large energy companies. I actually had a consulting firm, consulting firm before I started at Mission Critical. And in that consulting firm, which I ran for more than nine years, 
uh, you know, we focused on tracking hydrocarbons in the value chain and then also tracking some GHG emissions as well. Um, and so our customers were basically telling us that, you know, these that they were starting to become more mature in terms of tracking their sort of their scope one emissions, but that they really needed to kind of develop a much more comprehensive carbon footprint. And then specifically at the product level, you know, so if you look at a, some of these large companies, they sometimes produce, you know, hundreds or maybe even thousands of SKUs of different products. And so you'll have a different, you know, nutrition label, if you will, for every one of those products. And so that's kind of what really led us is that to, to kind of forming these companies, we surveyed the market, didn't see a solution that was really geared specifically around this. And we had some very willing customers who were, you know, uh, ready to sort of be our uh, early early partners. Mm -hmm. yeah. So I'm curious, maybe we can get a little technical here. Um, I feel like when we talk about kind of measuring scope one, scope two, and scope three emissions, it's a big problem, right? right. And, and, and in some ways you're trying to say, here are all the emissions a company mm -hmm. produces. And and I think um, most folks who are kind of familiar with more of a scrum process, you say, oh, what's the small problem I want to solve first and kind of build that up to a big solution. Yeah. And it's almost like the, the discussion though is saying, let's start big and, and try to get focused. Um, so I think what's distinct here is you're saying, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pick my lane of trying to really understand products. And then if you sum up all the products, then theoretically you should be able to kind of back into the overall emissions of a company. But it, do you see there's a reason why we... Uh, are kind of approaching it from one way or another, well, and, I and which is easier, I guess. Yeah, I think it's, so developing your scope one, two, three inventories is a prerequisite. Okay. So, you know, there are some companies that we work with that have absolutely nothing. Mm. So before you can even do any kind of product lifecycle analysis, you first need to develop that core scope one, mm. two, three inventory. Then you can add the production details and the routes and so forth. So that's a prerequisite. So it is a layer on top. Exactly. It's, really, it's not really a grassroots kind of approach. It's really making more granular analysis. Correct. Okay. You're taking the inventory down to the actual product. And it's just because I think we're still pretty early on as a market mm -hmm. um, in terms of developing these inventories. So it's natural that companies would be focusing on trying to get that right first. Mm -hmm. But there are companies right now who are trying to, to basically, for many reasons, um, which we can go into um, later, to essentially bring that to the to the product level because maybe they want to be more competitive, right? Mm -hmm. They want to sell their product as lower carbon and then, you know, uh, potentially secure more sales. Or there could even be opportunities to get price premiums. We're seeing some markets, um, especially in energy, where if you have a lower carbon product, like lower carbon LNG, for mm -hmm. instance, right, uh, you can secure a price premium over sort of, you know, traditionally produced uh, LNG or average LNG. Uh, and so we're seeing that in other markets as well, like steel, cement, and and so forth. So that's a big driver as to why some companies mm -hmm. are doing that now. Um, there's also regulations. Uh, regulations can come in the form of uh, you know tariffs, like they are in the mm -hmm. European Union. Mm -hmm. You may have heard of the carbon border adjustment mechanism, which is basically putting a tariff on any product carbon footprint, right? Which will require sort of this life cycle analysis, um, you know, assessment. So they will basically put a tariff on, you know, what what is what is the embodied carbon that you're basically, hmm. you know, um, importing. So that's another reason why some companies have started to become very interested in that they're importing to the EU, therefore, mm -hmm. you know. And then also in the U.S., as we all know about the IRA as mm -hmm. one example, as well as like uh, California with a lower carbon fuel standard. And then there's the analogous EPA programs as well. They provide tax credits. So if you can justify and show through an LCA, hey, I've got you know, um, a qualifying carbon intensity, mm. right? Then you can secure tax credits. So that's directly to your bottom line. 
mm-hmm. which is why there are uh, companies who are you know really interested in doing this uh, at the moment. But that's one of the big drivers. Mm-hmm. And, and you describe it like a like an analogous to a nutrition label, which kind of points to me that. Uh, you want to get this in front of end consumers at the end of the day, like on the retail side where if I'm looking at my like flight home to DC, am I going to be able to see kind of a carbon label at that granularity? Because I know they already tried to sell me carbon credits when mm-hmm. I buy my airplane ticket. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, that, that's definitely one implementation yeah. of it. So we are focused on sort of the B2B market, okay. you know, and the reason for that is because at the moment, it's really the largest companies in the world, the largest emitters mm-hmm. in the world that are under scrutiny and mm-hmm. pressure to decarbonize. So you want to go where the problem is urgent, mm-hmm. you know, where they wanted to solve mm-hmm. this yesterday. Um, you know, the regulations and the forcing functions have not trickled down yet to the consumer. Mm-hmm. It's very voluntary, right, mm-hmm. for you and mm-hmm. me, whether I want to offset my flight or not, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Um, but for these companies, it's a matter of securing investment. Mm. It's a matter of being included in specific funds. It's a matter of include, uh, you know, increasing sales or potentially securing additional, you know, um, uh, premiums in in sales. Could you give us some examples of some of the use cases, some of the customers that you have? You know, what kind of products are you talking about um, in this early phase of? Um, the company. Yeah, sure. So we're very focused on heavy industrial products. Okay. Um, so really energy, chemicals. Um, we're also working with a steel company, um, cement mm-hmm. manufacturing. So broadly these categories. And what we're looking to do is really work with some of the early adopters in mm-hmm. these markets. Mm-hmm. Because if you look at the market as a whole, the regulations haven't yet quite hit. So really, it's going to be about working with those companies who want to be on the leading edge of this, who see value and, mm-hmm. you know, where your sale is not going to take, you know, uh, like a year or two years, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. You, want, you want to be able to overcome mm-hmm. that threshold, um, you know, a lot sooner, especially for startup, because that's, that's like death to a startup, right? Mm-hmm. These long sales cycles. Hmm. Who, who is the typical buyer within a company uh, for this? Yeah, so the actual push, because we're looking at product, mm-hmm. right, and because it's being sold to an end customer, mm-hmm. typically it's the commercial yeah. folks who actually drive it, who say, hey, you know, I'm I'm seeing, I'm seeing, surveying the market. I have customers who are asking for lower carbon products, maybe even wanting to pay extra for them. Mm-hmm. So then they work internally with their sustainability team as well as the ops folks and say, we need to kind of develop and operationalize a strategy for how we're actually going to get this data ready and also ultimately get it verified so that we can actually, you know, capture these um, benefits Mm -hmm. on the the sales side. So it's commercial that's driving it, but it's a cross-functional team. Mm -hmm. And and in terms of the output, um, I assume, you know, you're thinking about it on a SKU level, but is this something where there's like a report generated annually or is this more frequent? Yeah, so it really depends on the um type of business mm-hmm. so if you look at an energy business for instance and they are you know producing gas month on month mm-hmm. right then we would uh, do it on a continuous basis so we basically would say uh, produce a statement a carbon statement for every month of production mm-hmm. so that's sort of a continuous mode of production because they're selling it into into the grid or wherever mm-hmm. um we can also do it batch by batch so mm-hmm. if you're looking at you know shipments right like mm-hmm. you know mm-hmm. you, you div- manufactured some shoes for instance right and you've shipped 50 shoes to the warehouse for for sale right um you know that's something that we produce a statement for on a batch by batch basis 
So really, um, the software is is extremely capable. We call it continuous lifecycle mm-hmm. analysis, which means we go down to the batch level um, and can do it. You know, we capture multiple snapshots as yeah. as the as time moves. Yeah, no, you were, you were saying shipments, and I know that used to be in shipping. And I was thinking there's a difference between a very dirty old <laughs> ship and a new <laughs> like ammonia powered ship. But right. like, yeah, the the that lifecycle would actually matter in terms yeah. of the shipping mm. container. Right. right. Yeah. Um, and then when I when I talk about shipping, I'm talking more broadly yeah. as well about yeah. cargoes. Yeah. You know, yeah. cargoes and the mm. batches of products that you're actually yeah. selling to customers. Mm. Yeah. Interesting. Um and and what do you think um why was now the time really? You said you started in this last year. Like what was the the moment where you said this was the year to do it, not five years ago or not not in the future. Well, I think we started to see a lot of momentum build up mm-hmm. from uh, you know investors and regulators. Um, so if you look at the regulatory landscape, for instance, right, mm-hmm. uh, we all knew that the carbon border adjustment mechanism was coming down the pipe. Mm-hmm. We didn't have all the details, but you kn- we knew that it was you know on the horizon. We also know that the EU is very progressive, right, when it comes mm-hmm. to sustainability. Um, what was interesting to me personally, being based in the U.S., is I started to see that um, you know on our side of the pond. Uh, that there was uh, bills being proposed to actually mirror the mm. carbon border adjustment mm. mechanism. There's something that's been proposed called the Clean Competition Act, mm. which is essentially kind of a mirror image. Mm. And uh, what's noteworthy is that it has bipartisan support. Mm. Mm-hmm. You know, mm. and so that is, you know, in our current political landscape, extremely important, right? So I think from the regulatory perspective, it was clear to me that the tailwinds were there. Mm. Uh, and then when you look at it from customers, you know, and I haven't worked in energy for most of my career, you know, uh, my first sort of set of feedback and validation was coming from them, mm-hmm. from my previous customers, mm-hmm. right? And so I started to get a lot of positive feedback from mm-hmm. them about saying that they wanted to do this, they want, and they were trying to, you know, um, satisfy sort of the sales requirements uh, and and kind of develop this product carbon footprint. Um, so that's kind of where. Uh, a lot of this this coming from yeah mm. i kind of want to dig into the tax because i think um you know sometimes we're trying to unpack like carbon credits we were unpacking uh rex uh right. last week um is this just another is, is this uh, a complex another mechanism people have to uh, understand and certify against or is it kind of interchangeable with when we talk about carbon credits and i know there's no such thing as a single carbon credit so help us kind of understand how it's maybe the same or different yeah sure so um you know, when we look at life cycle analysis, what we're really looking at is is the complete systems, the mm-hmm. complete sort of accounting. Mm-hmm. So you, you can divide the accounting ledger really into two sections, the emission side of liabilities, and then your offsets mm-hmm. or credits, mm-hmm. right? So what we focus on is we focus on the whole system, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And uh, we focus on generating that statement and then using that data for analysis to help companies uh, reduce their yeah. emissions. Yeah. So the credits are basically an input into mm-hmm. what we do. We may not necessarily be uh, very all consumed with what credit and mm-hmm. how it was developed because that's usually kind of verified and uh, sorted out by somebody else. But that is an input into our system. And then what we do is we take that and then we allocate it against mm-hmm. the product. And so you could choose to allocate that credit, for instance, to you know um, one batch of product or you could choose to allocate it to, you know, um, another batch, mm-hmm. right? So you have a lot of decisions in terms of what is your customer asking for? Some customers are asking for carbon neutral deliveries, right? Mm-hmm. In, and they're willing to pay a little extra. So then 
you procure some offsets or credits and then you can basically apply them. Yeah. Okay. So so I understand. So there's some account some of it is accounting in terms yes. of how you want to allocate the mm -hmm. the credit resource. Yeah. But I guess my question is when you show up at the border, mm -hmm. um, and I assume the, ta the tariff isn't in place yet, but like wh what's the expectation for what you actually need to show at the port of entry? Yeah, so what you need to show is a statement that basically uh, outlines, okay, batch by batch, mm -hmm. what is the product carbon footprint? What are all the emissions incurred to create mm -hmm. this product? Um, and you also need to do it you know, itemized by batch, and okay. it also needs to be reported quarterly. And that's, and so that's part, of, that, that's part of why you're able to go to the batch level and the Correct. time levels, because you can do that. And and I guess my my question is who certifies that? Like, or mm. what are they looking for at the border to know that it's not me, Jason, making it up, yeah. but it's actually an expert making it up? Yes. Yeah, so yeah. it's uh, all of these um, statements ultimately have to be verified by a third party. So in the same way that mm. you might verify financial data, mm. uh, like an EY or KPMG or any of these um, entities would ver verify financial data, you have analogous firms who are basically specialized in verifying this information. Now, with the tariff mm. uh, that we're speaking of in question, um, because they realize that the burden of the tariff in yeah. terms of companies trying to prepare this data is high. So what they've said is that for the first few years, you don't have to have the data verified. You have to start reporting, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. but mm. it's essentially a transition period to get you ready mm. so that, you know, come 2026, you know, that's when you'll, you'll start to have some verification requirements. Mm -hmm. And then there will actually be, you know, penalties on, uh, you know, if your carbon emissions are mm -hmm. essentially higher than what they're producing in the EU. Interesting. Mm -hmm. Okay. So I'm, I'm wondering how, um, like, what's your vision for emission critical technologies in the future? What, it, what would it look like um, compared to like what you're trying to do today is like through these small use cases in an ideal scenario? Yeah, so I think... We're trying to take it sort of um, industry by industry. You know, we're mm -hmm. working with several several early adopters in each industry, and ultimately, we want to become sort of a system of record, potentially even what we call a certifier—not mm -hmm. a verifier, but a certifier mm -hmm. of data, where we can look at you know, like the nutrition label and essentially give you a score mm -hmm. and say, okay, you get you know, grade A, mm -hmm. for instance, mm -hmm. right? And then that can be a signal to the market to say, mm. hey, I've got to come in and pay mm. attention to this because I'm in the market for lower carbon products, mm. right? So I think that's kind of where we'd like to get to. And ultimately the vision mm. really centers around, you know, accelerating the low carbon economy. Mm. I'm a big believer in market-based forces. Mm -hmm. We can't rely on the government to help us because it's going to take mm. too long. Regulations are going to come, but they're going to take their own time. Mm. So, and that's why we're really focusing on this problem as we feel that it's really the end customer who is mm -hmm. ultimately going to have the biggest impact in the near term mm -hmm. to actually drive change, right? Mm -hmm. and, to, and to force companies to invest money and resources to mm -hmm. actually decarbonizing their, their operations. Mm -hmm. So it'd be like another kind of standard body that certifies and says, you know, it's like kind of has your stamp of approval on it and says, you know, these this is, you know, maybe a grading system or something like that. Yeah, I think the way we would, so we, we look at it as, you know, first it's our, our software, right? Yeah. Then mm -hmm. after that, once we've got that sort of in mm. place and we have product market fit, then we get to the actual data itself. Mm -hmm. And that's where, you know, we could actually start to sort of stamp out or issue, you know, certificates or something to basically mm -hmm. show that, hey, you know, we've produced this data according to all these various standards. Mm -hmm. And, you know, on this scale, you know, one to five scale, mm -hmm. you're a one or you're a five. And then that can be a signal to the market uh, in terms of what they need to pay attention to. And it also can, um, you know, alleviate the sort of 
engagement time that auditors have to actually come in because if they've got a, mm. a sort of established guideline already there mm. um, and the system is providing full traceability in terms of formulas mm. and calculations, it's a lot easier for them to come in and you know give you reasonable assurance mm. as opposed to what's happening currently, which is you know you have black box mm. systems, mm-hmm. these are not easily auditable. And so the engagement time goes up and therefore costs go up. Mm. So you want to make the the system more transparent. Mm-hmm. And at the same time, like what would really be required is that level of trust, right? Like that we can trust yeah. this this company to be able to come in and then evaluate a lot of different products. Yeah, that's correct. So yeah. how do you how do you think um you will work on like gaining that trust from from the industry as a startup? What are the challenges you foresee? Yeah, I mean, I think yeah. it's you have to um, approach the problem in a step-by-step way. So I mm-hmm. think it's really first amassing a critical mass of customers, mm-hmm. uh, you know, in in these various industries. And so that's really what we're ultimately mm-hmm. very, very focused on right mm-hmm. now. Once we have that, you know, standard bodies and, you know, and, and certification agencies will start to pay attention to us right. just because we will start to become more of the, the dominant player in the market. Yeah. Um, and so that's kind of, we think that's going to happen really organically. We're certainly in touch with some of the bodies already mm-hmm. uh, and trying to develop those relationships. Um, but obviously a lot of it is what's your, what's your footprint, sorry, pun intended mm-hmm. in terms mm-hmm. of the actual, uh, you know, customer landscape. Mm-hmm. I always thought it was like a funny shift when I was running a startup where, um, you know, you're, 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 you're the expert in kind of the life cycle mm-hmm. uh, analysis. And at some point, the, uh, the the regulatory bodies like pick up on that and they go, oh, he's the expert. I need his opinion. And you think to yourself, well, I'm just a little startup. But the reality is there are only so many experts. There's a reason mm-hmm. why you know founders decide to jump in and, and take the leap. Um, and, and I think uh, before we turned on the, the mic, we were talking about having a seat at the table right. and really um, uh, discussing kind of where the industry goes gives you that kind of ability to um, chart out you know where, where this industry and where this um, mechanism needs to go because people are going to recognize the the leadership. So th- that's part of just being there. Right? Yeah, absolutely. And I would even take it one step further. It's it's not just about being a subject matter expert. Mm-hmm. It's also about sort of productizing that yeah. in a in a in a software product because mm-hmm. you know the whole point of using a software product like ours is that you basically simplify and automate the process. You can go from like a one-time static mm-hmm. lifecycle analysis which is, you know, um, has a high data collection mm-hmm. overhead, requires a high level of expertise to a software that has all of the guidelines and rules already embedded right and can produce the statements on a continuous basis it's, it's a standard essentially yeah. once mm-hmm. it's it's kind of coded in the process it's coded in and that that repeatability makes it exactly valuable. exactly mm-hmm. so it's that we're really focused on that you know systemization or productization of of the various guidelines and some of these guidelines are hundreds or even even thousands of pages mm-hmm. in length so mm-hmm. it's it is quite a task to basically be able to put it into a product that can be you know used in a f- user friendly way Mm-hmm. Um, by by end customers because one of the biggest pieces of feedback we've received from our from our customers is basically that you know they want to be able to configure it themselves it's mm-hmm. they want it to be self-serve you know and, uh, they don't want to have to necessarily call in expensive third-party consultants to come in and do it for them right so um because they have their own expertise mm-hmm. and so that's kind of what we're ultimately providing I was curious to get your views on there are a lot of companies that I'm seeing pitching these days that use blockchain technology right. to trace these emissions right. and keep track of them. And what's your view there? Because 
you're not using blockchain for this solution. Not at the moment. Mm -hmm. It's in our kind of roadmap, but, you know, as an option, um, you know, we've seen different approaches to this. So, um, you know, there are some kind of, um, let's say, you know, sustainability bodies or nonprofit entities who have essentially developed platforms for data exchange. Mm -hmm. The whole Mm -hmm. point of, you know, blockchain in, in this context is really around uh, data sharing, data exchange between counterparties. Mm-hmm. So there are some non-blockchain solutions already out there for mm-hmm. specific markets that mm-hmm. allow counterparties to basically exchange data. And then you can basically trace the life cycle of a product, right? Mm-hmm. So if you look at an energy example, you could look at crude oil and then what does the crude oil turn into? Okay, it turns into jet fuel and it turns mm-hmm. into tar and then et cetera, et cetera, right? And then that gets turned into you know chemical products and then that gets turned into packaged products and so forth, right? So you can basically visualize all of that, you know, Mm -hmm. um, on one of these platforms. Blockchain is just an enabling technology. Um, There are some advantages to using blockchain uh, over some of these Mm -hmm. platforms. And then there are some some disadvantages as well. As far as we're concerned, you know, we're trying to focus on that early problem of trying to essentially get the product carbon footprint data uh, robust. Right? Because before you can start to kind of get into blockchain and share data with counterparties, you need to make sure that that core data itself is is well prepared. Mm-hmm. And so that would be a logical next step is, okay, what is the data sharing mechanism, right? And then blockchain could be a, an option mm-hmm. for us. Um, and we've already started to talk to a few companies about it, mm-hmm. but you know that is not necessarily the immediate priority. Immediate priority is we need to, we need to get this data ready. Mm-hmm. 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 Yeah, and data, you know, I mean, 10, 15 years ago, um, there were still a lot of questions on like getting the right amount of data and collecting that data right. and being able to trust that data. How do you think that has evolved, especially when it comes to emissions data? And what kind of data is important for you for this solution? Yeah, sure. So, um, you know, our solution, we we don't just look at the emission inventories, right? And that's, I think, we're sort of in the life cycle analysis bucket of software. And so we look at the production information, the sold quantities, and how much was purchased, as well as, you know, the, the pathways that the raw materials and products flow through. So we're looking at different data streams, first of all. Um, and so we, but we take input from these mm-hmm. uh, you know emissions reporting solutions. Now, in terms of the data, I think, you know, the main thing that companies, uh, in, in our opinion, have to be focused on is making sure you have defensible data. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, you have to look at your specific case and and kind of ask the question, how good is, is it good enough? Mm-hmm. Right. Because well, you could you could go, pass an audit, essentially. Right? Yeah, that's what so that's that's what we mean by defensible. Right. Yeah. It needs to be it needs to pass an audit or, or withstand some kind of scrutiny. Right. Mm-hmm. At a minimum. Mm. Then you have other kind of forcing functions like, for instance, the tax credits and so mm-hmm. forth that are that offer benefits if you can actually further reduce. So there isn't like this minimum mm. threshold you meet and then you're good. Mm. It's like a progressive scale where the more you lower it, right, essentially the more benefit you can get, mm-hmm. right? And so in those sorts of instances, that's where companies will have to maybe invest in better sensors or better modeling technologies mm-hmm. to essentially, uh, you know, fill in those data gaps. Because as everybody knows, when it comes to emissions data, there are a lot of uh, gaps, especially as it relates to scope three, Mm -hmm. right? Um, And there are companies out there who are trying to solve that. Uh, And scope three does pop up as well, you know, as far as we're concerned, but it's more of an input to Mm -hmm. kind of of what we do. Mm -hmm. I feel like 15 years ago, data, 
it wasn't like such a background part of our lives like it, mm. it felt like it was expensive to have a lot of it mm. and um i was uh, was at a conference last week and the the assumption was well storage is essentially free at this point because mm-hmm. it's so cheap mm-hmm. you might as well just capture everything and, and maintain a registry of it too yeah sure. right whereas, whereas i don't think that was the conversation 15 mm. to 20 years ago there was still that kind of premium and mm-hmm. so it was really a question of like, what's too much? Yeah. And now it's just like, <laughs> yeah, no, it all in. yeah. I, I agree. And I yeah. was, I would supplement. It's not yeah. just about being in the cloud or storage yeah. being quick. That, that's one, uh, one part, but it's also the data technology stack itself yeah. has evolved. And, and so way data like, science yeah. as a field mm-hmm. has really evolved. And so it's, you know, increased our ability to basically fill in data gaps where mm. maybe we don't get data from suppliers or we don't know how the, uh, you know, end consumer is using our product, right? Mm-hmm. So I think definitely the technology stack evolving has mm-hmm. really kind of, you know, uh, gotten us to a place where we can actually do something. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was curious about a little bit just about your background and how you made that leap um, to start your own company, having, I guess, worked with corporate most of your career what was that moment like yeah sure mm-hmm. so i um mm-hmm. you know I, yeah, i've worked at the energy industry my entire career mm-hmm. and uh, you know focused on these sort of enterprise system solutions tracking hydrocarbons as well as tracking um, some ghgs and i actually uh, left the corporate world as an employee mm-hmm. after about five five years mm-hmm. And um, then I started my own consulting firm, actually. Mm-hmm. So I had sort of founded a business already and ran it. And I ran it um, you know, for about nine years mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and consulted with various uh, companies in the, you know, the sort of who's who of the energy industry, mm-hmm. uh, very related to what I did in my, in my corporate career. So I already have uh, some experience running and founding a business, even though it was a consulting business. Mm-hmm. Um, now, as we started to hear more and more feedback from our existing customers when I was in the consulting firm, um, they started to ask questions around, okay, you know, uh, we want to track carbon emissions mm-hmm. the way we track oil, gas, and water in our operations. We want to have that mindset. It's like the fourth fluid. Mm-hmm. When I started to hear um, mm-hmm. this sort of, you know, narration, mm-hmm. I, you know, I started to realize, okay, these guys are starting to get more serious about this. Mm-hmm. And then they wanted to understand what is the, uh, what are the, what's the emission profile at the product level? Mm-hmm. And so all of these questions spurred, uh, you know, myself and my co-founder to basically survey the market and really look at if there was a, a solution out there that was already doing this. Mm-hmm. And there are some solutions doing the sort of one-time static LCAs, but not many at all doing sort of this continuous dynamic um, LCA. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so that prompted us to actually uh, close down the consulting firm. So I actually closed down the consulting mm-hmm. firm and then formed Emission Critical, which is a product-focused business. Mm-hmm. And how did you find your co-founder? So I actually found my co-founder through um, Y Combinator's mm-hmm. matching program. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I had already kind of had some initial interest from customers, had a had a had a decent idea of what kind of product I wanted to build. Now I I I was very cognizant of the fact that I have, you know, uh, product expertise, domain expertise. I had run a business before, but I really wanted a strong partner who was who was strong in the uh, uh, software engineering space. Mm. And so I found uh, a gentleman by the name of Mohit. He basically is a second time founder. He actually successfully exited his previous startup. Uh, just about uh, two, two and a half years ago. Mm. And so he was really looking to get involved in the environment. He was very passionate about climate reduction and climate action. And so, you know, we really sort of clicked in terms of our values and what we wanted to build. So 
so yeah that's kind of how we met and then he also because he worked at a previous uh, startup he also had access to very high caliber software mm-hmm. engineering expertise mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. so we could start a team immediately mm-hmm. it wasn't like we had to go out and recruit people one by one mm-hmm. yeah. he came already with a network we could we onboarded several people right off the bat and then created a solid nucleus of software engineering mm. and so that was another very compelling reason why you know um, i thought it would be a great partnership between us yeah i, I have a statement that i want to ask a question so I, I got approached by a founder gosh two weeks ago asking why, why don't investors want to come to houston this is the reason why investors don't want to come to houston because when you invest in a silicon valley company you you can get a team mm. and you can just get the product so fast Whereas here, we're kind of, it, it would take us two years to do the same thing <laughs> you probably did in six months. And uh, so anyways, I, I don't know if you have a reaction to that. <laughs> yeah, I know. I, I do. I do think it's getting better. Yeah. I mean, mm-hmm. I, I definitely am living that pain because as we're trying to recruit, I think that the resources in the in the Houston area still are not quite at the level mm-hmm. of, you know, Silicon Valley, um, you know, in terms of trying to, uh, you know, get access to to the right expertise we know it's out there i mean houston has plenty of incredible expertise you know um, a lot of the expertise in in the core energy industry is going to be so applicable in the energy transition as well and you know being a part of the rice clean energy Mm. accelerator um, also regularly attending events at greentown Mm. um, have made me extremely optimistic about the about the future of you know the startup innovation um you know landscape here in houston um but yeah i mean i I definitely agree with your point that i think you know uh especially as it relates to early stage capital Mm -hmm. i would say Mm -hmm. early stage capital is still a a bit thin in houston compared to you know other places it's even compared to i would say new york yeah you know Mm -hmm. i also think that the risk tolerance also is generally um lower as well is Mm -hmm. what i've seen Mm because you know we've spoken to investors in california and in houston and you know, essentially the same amount of risk, we're, we're finding that there are folks in California who are willing to pay more. They mm. sort of see the payoff, you they, know, and they kind of, yeah. um, they have that mindset of being being wanted mm. to take more risk. I, w- I want to go back to the YCOM matching program for a little bit, because sure. uh, you're probably the first one I've met who've gone through that. How'd you get in? What was the mm. process? They like Houston founders? <laughs> Question yeah, mark. they take founders from everywhere. So j- just to be clear, yeah. you know, we, we um, the matching program is just basically a portal. Okay, Mm -hmm. so you can basically go and create a portal. Anybody can do it. Mm -hmm. Okay, anybody can create, um, you know, a profile and then you have essentially a database of other, you know, founders, other individuals who want to work in a startup. Mm -hmm. And then you could basically just message them. Okay. Right. And then engage them and then set up time to learn about them. For me and my co-founder, we did uh, we did a few sprints to mm. kind of try things out. Mm. Um, so we had sort of this transition period of, OK, let's make sure that our chemistry is good. Let's make sure that we work well together, et cetera. Um, so that's what we did. So, and you know, as far as the the matching portal is concerned, there is no requirement necessarily to be part of YC. You know, the YC program in and of itself is something separate. Mm. That is, uh, you know. Um, that's very analogous to like the the clean energy accelerator. Yeah. So, I'm I'm curious why they do it, or or is, is was there a mechanism to try and understand what you guys were doing, or did they have any curated programming, or was it really just a web a hands off web portal? Yeah, it's just a web portal just okay. for co founder matching, and it's just a resource that they provide because based on popular demand. Okay, you know, one of the mm-hmm. toughest things, and I, I found this as well, is that you know trying to find the right co founder. You have a great idea, mm-hmm. you you but you you know you can't do it alone. Mm-hmm. Right. You need to find somebody to to partner with. So finding that person 
is an arduous process. I, I yeah. talked to more than 50 people. Yeah. you know before i honed in on someone okay you know and there's a lot of things have to line up yeah you know mm -hmm. it's not just chemistry it has to be the right time they have to have the flexibility and the mindset to be able to work in a startup understanding mm. that the payoff is going to be kind of in the long term and not in the short term they have to have financial flexibility mm -hmm. as well to be able to give a startup a chance right because if you've got a lot of bills on the table yep. that you need to pay you're less likely to jump into a startup so did, did you find that group at, specifically with Ycom, like, are, are they software, like, were, were they only software and uh, yeah, the, do, do they like climate? Yeah, so the, your climate's uh, recently become a big focus of, okay. of YC. Uh, you know, obviously they kind of, you know, really garnered a, a great reputation as far as software is yeah. concerned. But, you know, they've started to really diversify into, you know, hard tech as mm -hmm. well. You know, I personally think Houston's strength is in hard tech. Yeah. You know, in fact, when I was in the, Rice Clean Energy Accelerator, I think we were one of two software companies mm -hmm. in that entire cohort. Okay. Mm -hmm. um, you know, so I think hard tech founders, and that's why I think a lot of hard tech founders do come to Houston internationally. Um, but, you know, YC and others are, are, are looking at that and saying, hey, we can do it too. So. Hmm. Um, and so, and what has the funding journey been like for you now in the first year? Yeah, sure. So, you know, um, there's funding from myself as well as from my co-founder and then we have some angel money mm. and then we've just started to raise a, a seed round basically mm. Mm. and has you know you mentioned like it's been easier to get funds from like silicon valley um and and so right now you said it's family and friends yeah it's it's yeah, it's, yeah i would say angels so angels, angels can cover kind of a you know a broad spectrum some okay. are you know uh, ex-colleagues some are mm. uh, just folks who are really interested in what we're doing. Yeah. I found some of these folks as well on the Rice Clean Energy uh, Mentor Network. Okay. There are so some angel been, investors. They are that, from the Houston region. Yeah, yeah Being absolutely. able to get angels from here, I you think can. that's good to know. Yeah. You can. Um, hmm. And then also myself and my co-founder have actually put in some money. Both of us have had have ran successful businesses before. Mm -hmm. And so we wanted to also have our own skin in the game. Too. Mm -hmm. did, mm -hmm. did you do safe notes? Yes. And um, it sounds like you didn't necessarily go to one of the angel groups in Houston. It was really saying, I have a safe, please come in. Yeah, yeah. it was more one-off uh, okay. networking. Yeah. yeah, we didn't we didn't necessarily go to like Han or, or mm. those sorts of uh, networks. Yeah. I, I find we may, we yeah. may. Mm. I mean, yeah. It's something mm. that we're looking at right now. Mm. Yeah. I find a lot of founders that we run into here struggle with um, getting that, those first uh, checks in. Right. And, and so some of it is, you know, you always say go to friends and family. But I think mm. the other... Um, challenge sometimes is um it's kind of a grind you have to collect every every safe and every check right but how was that process for you or how did you know to this was the time to pull in capital uh well we needed to establish some kind of runway because the thing is is that you know since we are in sort of the enterprise software mm -hmm. space uh you know the sales cycles whatever you think they are double them <laughs> you know? it is it is brutal yep. you know so um you know if in this game, you really need to have some runway. So, so almost immediately, you need to start. Mm -hmm. uh, and especially as a CEO, you know that, that's kind of one of the main responsibilities of a CEO is to raise, right? Yeah. So you're always thinking about that, especially early on. Now, you can be tactical about it and say, okay, you know, um, I want to put my best foot forward. So when I go to the investor, mm -hmm. do I want to go with some contracts already under mm -hmm. my belt? Or do I just go in, you know, with my idea and my vision, right? Mm. That's kind of a tactical thing. Um, I think that worked, uh, you know, a few years ago uh, when, you know, valuations were a lot higher and, you know, investors were willing to take more risk. 
now I think that um, that has come down quite a bit. So I think the the bar has been raised in terms of you know what qualifies for for real venture capital. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I mean, in in reality, that's how it should be, right? You should have some kind of a minimum viable product product right. that people can bet on mm-hmm. um, and, in, and invest in. Right. So um, I think that's what we're seeing now in this market is also a lot of companies who maybe ha- ha- don't really have anything mm-hmm. being weeded out, and the ones that you know are going to remain over the next couple of years. They say this is when you get the. The next, you know, Facebook um, and the big Amazons that are that come out of sort of the downturn. Yeah, no, I agree with you. We saw mm. that with the, like the dot com bust, right? Is mm-hmm. that like it wasn't as if you know the internet went away? Mm. It's just that you had you know diamonds that sort of came out of that, right? Mm-hmm. Like you said, Amazons mm-hmm. and others that came out of that dot com bust. So um, I think the same. We could probably see the same thing even in the in the blockchain world mm. as well, where you know we're sort of in this mm. you know winter, if you will. Right. Yeah. Um, as far as like cryptocurrencies and so forth are concerned. But yeah. this is where the diamonds get formed, the ones yeah. that are really going right. to be, you know, yeah. running sustainable businesses. Um, yeah. And what's different really about your solution compared to maybe some of the others that come on here, it is still a SaaS product. Mm-hmm. Yes. Um, and investors are more likely to go to like a SaaS tech mm-hmm. type of solution because they expect big returns. What are your views there in terms of these? climate tech technologies that are coming up and like the big returns that investors expect and what's really needed in terms of maybe perhaps a change in mindset for being able to fund these kind of solutions. So I didn't I didn't get the first part of it. Sorry, could you repeat your question? Uh, well, so, so uh, yeah. I guess there's a question of like, uh, usually um, in climate tech, people are doing hardware, right? To get, mm. a, get, right. A, get a big company off the ground, you got to put in like $200 million. But it's like capital intensive. Yeah, understood. Software is intrinsically not capital intensive, no. but you're still solving a big problem that Correct. the industry's faced. Yeah. And I guess is 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 there a difference in, in an investor? Like are you only talking to software investors or do you do you find yeah. or take um an interest from like more traditional or traditional, mm-hmm. but like mm-hmm. uh uh I guess energy and climate investors or I don't know if you've even started that part of the roadshow yet. Yeah, so I think you know it's very important. I mean, from our experience to speak to investors who have a thesis. Mm. Because if they've got a thesis, they're more likely to make a quick decision, whether it's yes or no. Mm-hmm. And that's what you ultimately want. You don't necessarily want to have this extremely long courtship between uh, you and the investor because as a startup, you know, time is is what kills you, yeah. right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think it is really important to have a thesis. So whether mm-hmm. their thesis is yes, you know, we do think a SaaS product can be successful in climate in your particular field. And then the second thing is, is yes, we've already made software investments and that we are relatively prolific in terms of mm. investing right i don't they don't just do one investment every two or three oh, years yeah. right oh my gosh <laughs> so you really have to kind of select your investors carefully for your own benefit so that you can actually because raising money as everybody knows is a is, a, is very difficult mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. so um absolutely i mean i think i think we're 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 looking at uh we're trying to look at funds that have done some software investments mm-hmm. already um and don't look at software as an outlier and there are some that we've spoken to who said, well, we've only done one or two software investments. Most of our stuff's clean tech, you know, et cetera. And we, we, we or, or hard tech, I should say. Mm. And, you know, we realized that, yeah, that, that bar is going to be really tough to cross. So one, one of the things that I, I came to learn is that, uh, especially for software, it's very metrics driven um, for, mm. for the investors. Once you hit a certain inflection point, usually after Series A, um, and then in climate, Maybe the I don't I don't mm-hmm. know if there are metrics even to look at. Um, 
because you're you're kind of straddling this line do you, how do you think about where the business needs to go and kind of like the next milestone you need mm-hmm. to hit is it is it 90 metrics or is it 10 metrics I don't, how do you think about yeah, that? Yeah, it's you know it is very metrics driven. Yeah. So at, I mean, at the seed round, probably not mm. actually. Mm. I mean, I think having some early adopters and some evidence of traction is all that's sufficient. Mm. But once you start raising a Series A round, mm. then definitely starts to become much more about metrics. And you know, in terms of what's your customer acquisition cost, you know, what's mm. your how many customers are you onboarding per month, mm-hmm. you know, um, and kind of like what are the are there any network effects? Because uh, ultimately, investors are looking at you know how fast you can grow. Mm. So I think those metrics will become very very important in our next race, not not in the one that we're currently doing. Mm. Okay. Um, when you think about I guess kind of the the pathway ahead, are there any roadblocks you're seeing, either internal or external to the business? Yeah, sure. So we've started just started a raise, and um, you know I think one thing that I've I we should have done is mm. is probably have tr- tried to even raise a pre-seed round mm. you know just because as i mentioned you know these enterprise sales cycles are very long mm. and you know having extra runway you know allows you to to be much more flexible in how you attack mm. the market because the early startups have to pivot a little bit you don't have to do major pivots but you have to do little pivots you know um based on what you're learning from your customers on so I think that's that's one part of it. One of the reasons why we didn't necessarily do a pre-seed is because particularly pre-seed valuations are not very attractive, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. So, and we thought we had something extremely compelling. We still do, but that also in the short term makes our life a little more difficult. All right, cash is king. Mm-hmm. Yes. Right? So, so tell me, um, it's funny because when I started, um, whatever it was a decade ago, it felt like seed was a new thing, and then yep. pre-seed emerged in the last like six or seven years. Right. What what really like in your mind kind of demarcates when a company is ready to be seed versus ready to be series a and is pre-seed just like a uh, two guys and a dog like where, where's yeah, that line i think it's sort of like you know it's sort of idea then you have like product then you have you know revenue i would look at these three stages you mm. know so if you look at just an idea you're really at a sort of a pre-seed mm-hmm. level right now, people change the labels because depending on how much you raid, <laughs> and if you raise five million dollars, nobody's going to call that a pre-seed, right? Well, it depends on if the, you're an energy you're building like hard tech. Okay, but yeah, fair yeah, enough. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. But software, we're talking software. Okay. <laughs> yeah. You know, um, yeah. So it really depends on the relative to what others are, are raising there. Um, yeah, and then obviously, you know, going from idea to then you you have a product like a minimum viable product mm. or something. That's when you're starting to approach that seed mm. stage. And then when you have a bit of revenue, that's an even stronger pull. So I'd say when you have a bit of revenue, plus you have, you know, a product uh, mm-hmm. that is commercially ready, mm. right? That's yeah. when, I mean, at least in software space. In yeah. hard tech, it's different. In hard mm-hmm. tech, it is very different because some some hard tech companies don't get to, T, you know, the, the TRLs are such that, you know, it'll take them, uh, a lot longer. It might be a Series D or E yeah. by the time they have something commercially ready. Yeah. So I'm, I'm going to say what you said, but maybe translate it in a different way. Yep. Um, pre-seed is, is you have an idea, maybe a proof of concept. Right. Um, seed is the stage where you are able to proof of value. Mm. Right. You say, look, we've tested it. Someone yeah. seems to like it. Validated. And Series A is where you have maybe product market fit or mm. proof of fit because now you've you yeah. sold several. Mm. Correct. And um, I, that's one way to to think about like what stage and. And we always ask the question because hardware makes it complicated. <laughs> but I think there there are good kind of points where you can say, like, this is why mm. I'm going to raise a pre-seed because this is the, I'm indicating to the market, mm. this is actually the stage we're at. 
Right. 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 Yeah, that's helpful. Yeah. The other thing I wanted to add too, in terms of like roadblocks, is obviously sort of the enterprise sales cycle being long is mm-hmm. something that we are thinking about a lot. How to increase our sales velocity? We've started to develop some strategies around that, but uh, you know, it's it's still generally going to be um, you know at least with the very very large companies, it's going to be. A, I would assume your biggest quarters are going to be fourth quarter in the last three weeks <laughs> and in and, and Q1. Is that is that typical for like uh, like a B2B model in, in Houston? I, I just assume people have to mm. spend the budget they don't spend. And then Q1 is when they get all the budget released. Yeah. So I think it, it makes what you're saying is correct if you're doing sort of small scale proof concepts. Mm. So if you're doing a pilot or proof of concept. Uh, and like you said, there's some budget left over, you know, yeah, companies are willing to do stuff, mm-hmm. right? But if you want an actual, like, you know, annual subscription SaaS type mm-hmm. contract, that typically has to be placed into a budget for next for the next mm-hmm. cycle, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Because, you know, they're not allowed mm-hmm. to spend money that they haven't yeah. applied for. So, mm-hmm. and, and that's what that's what draws the long time. It could literally be a year from when you you get the commitment mm. and, and, and yeah. things obviously can can happen in a year yeah um but you also need to inform the customer right. six to 12 months ahead mm. of them actually making the decision to order essentially right that, mm. so that's where it could it could uh, it could reach two years if you're very unlucky mm. right <laughs> yeah. and you want to make that faster right right i mean even some of the companies we're working with right now you know they really like what we're doing um having said that they they say okay we're going to put this as a line item mm. for next cycle mm-hmm. which might be in january or february yeah. next mm-hmm. year and we're like we want to get going now you know mm-hmm. so but yeah that's, that's the nature of it three months two months yeah. Yeah. yeah and having worked for some of these corporates i mean i know how hard it is to get a new software company and say you right. know we're going to have this contract so what are some of the challenges that you've seen there and i know yeah. you've said it's a long sales cycle but it's not even the length of the sales cycle but finding that right person who can sign and say okay if we're gonna have risk it with this startup yeah absolutely mm. so you've mm. highlighted on two important things one is as all these large corporates generally it's a consensus decision mm-hmm. so even if you find a budget holder or decision maker it's usually several people who have to come on board mm. before they make the purchase and that itself can you know mm. uh, lead to kind of a, these longer sales times the other aspect is they have to just have the mindset of uh, being ready to work with a startup mm. some companies we spoke to really like what we do but they're sort of, you know, uh, they're risk averse, yeah. you know, and mm. they ask questions about, well, are you guys going to, what if you guys get taken over? What if this happens? What mm. if that happens? And, you know, envisioning all sorts of scenarios that, you know, to me seem a bit nonsensical, but that's just their mindset. Yeah. That's how risk averse they are. So I think it is really important to to kind of select your early customers carefully. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it really helps that if the large corporates have a CVC associated mm-hmm. with it, mm-hmm. because then there is a history and a relationship of actually working with startups in the past. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of where we've actually had uh, some initial success is that, uh, you know, uh, some of the CVCs we've worked with have been able to help us get proof of concepts and mm-hmm. so forth. So mm-hmm. Yeah. So that's a good strategy. Yeah. You know, go with the CVCs because they have an incentive. Correct. To build these relationships because it's in the end of the day, that's what it's really about, building that relationship mm-hmm. so that someone can vouch for you in the system. Yeah, a lot of it is trust, yeah. right? Especially mm-hmm. when it's startup because if, you know, they don't mm-hmm. know you, you know, uh, and they have the choice in terms of software to go mm-hmm. to one of the mm-hmm. big incumbent mm-hmm. providers, mm-hmm. right? They have to really go to bat for you and be a champion for mm-hmm. what you're doing internal to the company. Uh, and so 
that's that's what you really need and that that's what we've tried to do is try to find you know supporters and champions who think that w- what we're doing really would add you know tremendous value mm-hmm. yeah. um man it's already 10 30. um <laughs> Yeah, so we ask usually about um, Houston and the yeah, ecosystem sure. here, and you're a local. Yes, you're from so I've been Houston. here since 07. I think that qualifies. Yeah, me, yeah. So. <laughs> yeah, I guess so. Um, so tell us how you've seen maybe the ecosystem evolve, and what, yeah. what are some of the gaps that you see still um, yeah. as we further build our ecosystem here? Yeah, no, I think um, definitely, you know, since I've been here since 07, mm-hmm. I think you know, I've, I've really been excited to see Greentown. I've really mm. been excited to see, you know, the ION, even sort of the Canon, for mm. instance, like mm. just a lot more resources mm-hmm. for entrepreneurs. Mm. You know, um, I think where I would like to see kind of see it develop further from a selfish standpoint is to kind of have more interest in software, mm. you know, because I do think, you know, Houston mm. is a great place for hard tech. But when it comes to software, it's it's a little thinner. Mm. You know, I think earlier stage capital, as we've spoken about, mm. um, you know, we need more, uh, you know, investors ready to do that. Uh, and then I think you're going to naturally see even more companies want to relocate mm. here. Yeah. They're going to say, hey, we want to come to, to Houston because, you know, our customers are energy and chemicals mm. customers. They're all here. And I have investors here yeah. because a lot of investors too early stage investors, they like to have companies that are close by. Mm -hmm. Like they they want them Mm -hmm. to be in the same, you know, state or the same city, just because so much of it is is trust and being able Mm -hmm. to kind of touch and feel, Mm -hmm. if you will, you know, um, your investee. So um, I think that's really, really key in an early stage, early stage startup and having that locally would, would I think be a a huge boon to, Mm -hmm. to Houston. And and what are some of the the gaps that prevent having more of a software industry here? I mean, aside from capital, but what else would we need to like kickstart that? I think it's a mindset. I think mm-hmm. I think you know energy heavy industrial companies. I don't want to talk just about energy, but are generally kind of you know slower moving. Mm-hmm. They're generally more risk averse, and it makes sense because they have safety considerations. They have a lot of other things that they. It's not like a tech company that can just pivot like mm-hmm. very very quickly, right? Um, so I think it's that mindset of saying, hey, you know. Um, I see value in software and I'm willing to work with a startup on software. Mm. That's the key part. Um, I think that's where we'll start to see the ecosystem improve because I've, I've uh, you know, been in discussions with several companies who really like what we're doing, but, you know, at the same time, they're not yet ready to make the leap mm. to work with us. They say, okay, well, you know, come back to us in about a year when you kind of have, you know, mm. progressed even further, you know? Mm. And so what we're trying to do is obviously you know, work with those who want to be on the leading edge and who want to actually work with with mm. startups. Mm. Yeah, and you know what? What I also see here is there's a lot of focus on building accelerator programs mm. that are right. like heavy industry focused right. here because that's what people know. That's the people who want to launch these programs. That's their background. Sure. And I think it's a very valid point that we need to focus also on the digital technologies because mm. they're going to go hand in hand. Absolutely. Um, every every hardware mm-hmm. now has some attached software. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, it is just part of the of what you're delivering ultimately. Mm. But it has to um, be a deliberate focus. It's not going to happen on its own because it's not the natural place right. for for technology innovate that kind of tech innovation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. and there. I mean, software mm-hmm. adds tremendous value to the energy transition, as mm-hmm. we all know. Yeah. So, I mean, there's a lot of you know ready, willing customers mm-hmm. here in this area. So yeah, so absolutely. But yeah, I mean, I think these accelerator programs for sure. Uh, you know. You know, with our acceptance into the Clean Energy Accelerator Class Two, there are other software companies who've also been part of that and had success, right? So I think 
we're starting to see, you know, software become grow, I should say, in terms of representation. So. Yeah. And it's funny, we did a, a exercise over at uh, Lambda um, last week um, and it was trying to rank, okay, where do technologies hmm. have that potential for impact and we can do it on a short period of time. And so um, if impact's on the right and, uh, and well, I'm going to do this on the left. <laughs> if, 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 uh, if you were trying to put stuff in the top left corner, the, the two topics that were nearest term, highest impact were implementation of AI and then implementation of uh, carbon accounting mm. uh, with software, right. both for products and for company emissions. And so I think there's a recognition that software, right. especially in mm. the context of energy transition and managing it, yep. th those are the places we can deliver a, a lot in the mm -hmm. near term. But there's that kind of internal barrier of how do we kind of block and tackle quickly mm -hmm. around some around software, which is maybe not not something we're used to. Mm -hmm. So I, I think it's it's very timely for you to to observe that. Um, so we, we talked about some of the changes in the ecosystem. Are there any hidden gems or, or resources you you find that are have been fantastic for you guys? So I, you know I I I think the two that I've harped on mm -hmm. already in this podcast, I think Greentown mm -hmm. and. Um, I think the Rice Clean Energy Accelerator also is one of the most supporting mm. supportive ecosystems out there. Um, they have a great network as mm. well. They have connections into many large companies, mm. um, and that's what you need, right? You you need to you need those connections because you need that initial trust. Yeah. You need somebody mm. to be able to say, "Hey, I want to work with a startup, right? Yeah. I want to champion what you're doing." Um, so I think I think definitely Rice Clean Energy Accelerator, what the Rice Alliance does. Um, I think Greentown is also. Mm. Fabulous. Mm. Um, I think Greentown gives a different view, meaning, you know, Rice is very much focused on energy and energy mm. transition. Greentown is kind of a much more broader, mm. right? They're looking at chemicals, they're looking mm. at utilities, they're looking at a lot of different things, mm. right? Mining, trading companies, and so forth. Um, and so we see all those as potential markets mm. for us. As, as I mentioned, we're trying to work with sort of the, the early adopters, right? And we find early adopters in, in various industries. So heavy right. industries um well as, as i guess as we wrap this up is there anything the audience here could potentially do to help you guys out yeah sure so i mean we are uh sort of raising our seed round so if there are any investors out there who would like to learn more about us mm -hmm. um they could certainly contact me at my email sham at emissioncritical.io um you know i'm also on linkedin uh if there are any companies out there who are actually you know interested in learning more about us and seeing if what we do is applicable to them you know, we definitely uh, would be delighted to speak with those folks. And then if there are any um, engineers out there, you know, mm. who are who are looking to get involved in climate, who think they 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 want to be part of something uh, young and special, you know, please do reach out because we are we are on the hunt for, um, you know, additional expertise. Good. Well, thank you awesome. for, for being here with yeah. us. Thanks for having thank me. Thank you. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed today's show. If you like the show, share it with a friend or give us a review on your podcast platform. Lastly, if you have an entrepreneur in Houston that you'd like to hear more about, let us know and we'll try to bring them in. See you next week on Energy Tech Startups.